Hello, and welcome to today's reading of the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier for Friday, December the 8th, 2023. I'm your reader, Scott Splavik, and here's our first story. It's entitled, Judge Grants Abortion Request. Doctors say pregnancy threatens woman's ability to carry another child. It's written by Paul J. Weber of the Associated Press, and the dateline is Austin, Texas. A Texas judge on Thursday gave a pregnant woman whose fetus has a fatal diagnosis permission to get an abortion in an unprecedented challenge over bans that more than a dozen states have enacted since Roe v. Wade was overturned. The lawsuit by Kate Cox, a 31-year-old mother of two from the Dallas area, is believed to be the first time since the landmark U.S. Supreme Court decision last year that a woman has asked a court to approve an abortion. The order only applies to Cox, and her attorneys warned it is unfeasible that scores of other women seeking abortions would also turn to courts. This can't be the new normal, said Mark Herron, an attorney for the Center for Reproductive Rights. I don't think you can expect to see now hundreds of cases being filed on behalf of patients. It's just not realistic. State District Judge Maya Guerrera Gamble, an elected Democrat, granted a temporary restraining order allowing Cox to have an abortion under what are narrow exceptions to Texas's ban. Her attorneys said they would not disclose what Cox planned to do next, citing safety concerns. Republican Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton, whose office argued that Cox does not meet the criteria for a medical exception, issued a statement that they that did not say whether the state would appeal. But in a letter to three Houston hospitals, Paxton warned that legal consequences were still possible if, if Cox's physician provided the abortion. Cox, who is 20 weeks pregnant, attended the hearing via Zoom with her husband, but did not address the court. Doctors have told Cox that if the baby's heartbeat were to stop, inducing labor would carry a risk of a uterine rupture because of her prior cesarean sections and that another C-section at full term would endanger her ability to carry another child. The idea that Ms. Cox wants so desperately to be a parent and this law may have her lose that ability is shocking and would be a genuine miscarriage of justice, Gamble said. The Center for Reproductive Rights, which represents Cox, says this lawsuit is believed to be the first of its kind since Roe v. Wade was overturned. Since that landmark ruling, Texas and 12 other states rushed to ban abortion at nearly all stages of pregnancy. Opponents seek to weaken those bans, including an ongoing Texas challenge over whether the state's law is too restrictive for women with pregnancy complications. I do not want to continue the pain and suffering that has plagued this pregnancy or continue to put my body or my mental health through the risks of continuing this pregnancy, Cox wrote in an editorial published in the Dallas Morning News. I do not want my baby to arrive in this world only to watch her suffer. The temporary restraining order stops Texas from enforcing the state's ban on Cox and lasts for 14 days. Under the restrictions in Texas, Doctors who provide abortions could face criminal charges that carry a punishment of up to a life in prison. They could also be fined. Pregnant women cannot be criminally charged for having an abortion in Texas. Paxton told the Houston hospitals the order will not insulate you from civil and criminal liabilities. 
arguing that private citizens could still bring lawsuits and local prosecutors could still bring charges. Seth Chandler, a law professor at the University of Houston, said he would have concerns as a physician based on both legal issues and Paxton's apparent zeal to enforce the state's abortion ban. If I were one of the doctors involved here, I would not sleep easy performing that abortion, he said. The other article from the front page of The Courier is entitled, Pearl Harbor Survivors Return to Honor Those Who Perished. Ceremony Remembers Those Killed in Attack 82 Years Ago. It's written by Audrey McAvoy and Claire Rush of the Associated Press, and the dateline is Pearl Harbor, Hawaii. Ira Ike Schaub had just showered, put on a clean sailor's uniform, and closed his locker aboard the USS Dobbin when he heard a call for a fire rescue party. He went topside to see the USS Utah capsizing and Japanese planes in the air. He scurried back below deck to grab boxes of ammunition and joined a daisy chain of sailors feeding shells to an anti-aircraft gun up above. We were pretty startled, startled and scared to death, Schaub, now 103, said at his home in Beaverton, Oregon, where he lives with his daughter. We didn't know what to expect, and we knew that if anything happened to us, that would be it. Eighty-two years later, Schaub returned to Pearl Harbor Thursday on the anniversary of the attack to remember the more than 2,300 servicemen killed. He was one of five survivors at a ceremony commemorating the assault that propelled the United States into World War II. Six of the increasingly frail men had been expected, but one was not feeling well, organizers said. The aging pool of Pearl Harbor survivors has been rapidly shrinking. There is now just one crew member of the USS Arizona still living, 102-year-old Lou Conter of California. Two years ago, survivors who attended the 80th anniversary remembrance ranged from age 97 to 103. David Kilton, the National Park Service's Interpretation, Education, and Visitor Services lead for Pearl Harbor, noted that for many years, survivors frequently volunteered to share their experiences with visitors to the historic site. That's not possible anymore. We could be the last storytellers in the world, and we can't really hold a candle to those that lived it, sharing their stories firsthand, Kilton said. But now that we are losing that generation and won't have them very much longer, the opportunity shifts to reflect even more so on the sacrifices that were made, the stories that they did share. The U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs doesn't keep statistics for how many Pearl Harbor survivors are still living, but department data show that of the 16 million who served in World War II, only about 120,000 were alive as of October, and an estimated 131 die each day. There were about 87,000 military personnel on Oahu at the time of the attack, according to a rough estimate compiled by military historian J. Michael Wenger. Schaub never spoke much about Pearl Harbor until about a decade ago. He's since been sharing his story with family, student groups, and history buffs. He returned to Pearl Harbor several times since. The reason? To pay honor to the guys that didn't make it, he said. Thursday's ceremony was held on a field across the harbor from the USS Arizona Memorial, a white structure that sits above the rusting hull of the battleship, which exploded in a fireball and sank shortly after being hit. 
More than 1,100 sailors and Marines from the Arizona were killed and more than 900 are entombed inside. A moment of silence began at 7.55 a.m., the same time the attack began on December the 7th, 1941. Harry Chandler, age 102, who was a Navy hospital corpsman third class, raised the flag at a mobile hospital in Aia Heights in the hills above Pearl Harbor in 1941. Gazing over the water from his front row seat on the ceremony grounds on Thursday, Chandler said the memories of the USS Arizona blowing up still come back to him today. I saw these planes come, and I thought they were planes coming in from the States until I saw the bombs dropping, Chandler said. They took cover and then rode trucks down to Pearl Harbor where they attended to the injured. He remembers sailors trapped on the capsized USS Oklahoma, tapping on the hull of their ship to get rescued, and caring for those who eventually got out after teams cut holes in the ship. I look out there and I can still see what's going on. I can still see what was happening, said Chandler, who today lives in Tequesta, Florida. The Dobbin lost three sailors, according to Navy records. One was killed in action, and two died later of wounds suffered when fragments from a bomb struck the ship's stern. All were manning an anti-aircraft gun. That Sunday morning started peacefully for Schaub. He was expecting a visit from his brother, who was also in the Navy and was assigned to a naval radio station in Wahiawa, north of Pearl Harbor. The two never did get together that day. Schaub spent most of World War II in the Pacific with the Navy, going to the New Herbides, now known as Vanuatu, and then the Marinara Islands and Okinawa. He was never wounded. He told the Best Defense Foundation in an online interview three years ago that he must have had a guardian angel. You're scared stiff, but you stagger through the events as they happen and hope everything's going to turn out all right, he said. Now that brings us to an article that's entitled Chicago Debuts World's Tiniest Ambassador. It's written by Aaron Hooley of the Associated Press and the Dateline is Chicago. An eight-week-old arrival from Alaska chirps loudly before devouring ice chips in the nursery at Chicago's Shedd Aquarium. He is Pup EL2306, proper name to be determined, a northern sea otter who was found alone and malnourished in the remote town of Seldovia in October and taken to the Alaska Sea Life Center in Seward. Shed, one of only a few facilities in the United States with the resources to care for rescued otters, was contacted by the Sea Life Center and the aquarium's otter team made the cross-country journey with the fluffy brown marine mammal who arrived in Chicago at the end of November. Caring for a little otter pup is just like caring for an infant, including round-the-clock feeding, said Lana Gonzalez, a manager of penguins and otters at Shed. He also needs to get groomed. Sea otters have a very dense coat. There's anywhere from 700,000 to a million hairs per square inch, and that's what they use to keep themselves warm. They don't have a thick layer of blubber or fat like other marine animals do, so taking care of that coat is very important. An otter mother, mother would typically teach her offspring to groom. The aquarium team acts in her place to encourage the pup's healthy development. On Wednesday, otter supervisor Tracy Deakins entered the pup's enclosure with clean white towels and encouraged him to leave the water. 
Deacons pointed to different spots on his fur, and the pup responded by licking or rubbing it with his paws. The pup will remain in Shed's Rengenstein Sea Otter Nursery for a a few months, building bonds with the staff, and he will eventually be introduced to the otter habitat and the five other otters at the aquarium. Part of the growth process is moving pups from formula and small bits of clam to other solid foods. Gonzalez mentions the clam is restaurant quality and sustainably sourced. Rescued pups are usually designated by the federal government as non-releasable, and the shed experts said pups need their mothers for the first year of life. Once we bring him into our care, he won't be released back out into the natural environment. They're just too used to people. But the good news is that he'll be able to be an ambassador for his species here at the aquarium. So we're really happy about that, Gonzalez said. Study says thousands of wells near military bases tainted with PFAs. This is by Patricia Kimmy of KFF Health News. Water tests show nearly 3,000 private wells located near 63 active and former U.S. military bases are contaminated with forever chemicals at levels higher than what federal regulators consider safe for drinking. According to the Environmental Working Group, a Washington, D.C.-based nonprofit that analyzed Department of Defense testing data, 2,805 wells spread across 29 states were contaminated with at least one of two types of per- and polyfluoroalkali substances, or PFAs, above four parts per trillion, a limit proposed earlier this year by the Environmental Protection Agency. That new drinking water standard is expected to take effect by the end of the year. But contamination in those wells was lower than the 70 parts per trillion threshold the Pentagon uses to trigger remediation. EWG researchers said they did not know how many people rely on the wells for drinking, cooking, and bathing, but the 76 tested locations represent just a fraction of the private wells near 714 current or former military sites spread across the U.S. According to EWG, Texas had nearly a third of the contaminated wells, with 909. Researchers recorded clusters of tainted wells in both urban and rural areas from Riverside County and Sacramento in California to Rapid City, South Dakota and Helena, Montana. They're going to have to test more bases, said Jared Hayes, a senior policy analyst with EWG in an interview with KFF Health News. Those 2,805 are going to be a small number when they start testing drinking water wells near every single base. Defense Department officials are investigating hundreds of current and former domestic U.S. military installations and communities that surround them to determine whether their soil, groundwater, or drinking water is contaminated with PFAs chemicals. The Defense Department is a major contributor of PFAS policy pollution nationwide. The result of spills, dumping, or use of industrial solvents, firefighting foam, and other substances that contain what have been dubbed forever chemicals because they do not break down in the environment and can accumulate in the human body. Exposures to PFAs has also 
been associated with health problems such as decreased response to vaccines, some types of cancer, low birth weight, and high blood pressure during pregnancy, according to a report published last year by the National Academies of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine. A study published this year linked testicular cancer in military personnel to exposure of PFOs, the main type of PFAs chemical used in fighting foam. In July, a U.S. geological survey studied estimated that at least 45% of U.S. tap water contains at least one type of PFAs chemical. USGS researchers tested 716 locations nationwide and found the forever chemicals more frequently in samples that were collected near urban areas and potential sources of PFAs like military installations, airports, industrial sites, and wastewater treatment plants, according to Kelly Smalling, a USGS research chemist and lead author of the study. From the Nation and World page, Trump to appeal ruling. Attorneys argue his actions in office are not subject to prosecution. This is written by Alana Durkin Richer, Eric Tucker, Jennifer Peltz, and Michael R. Sisak of the Associated Press, and the dateline is Washington. Former President Donald Trump appealed a ruling that found he is not immune from criminal prosecution as he runs out of opportunities to delay or derail an upcoming trial on charges that he plotted to overturn the results of the 2020 election. Lawyers for the 2024 Republican presidential primary frontrunner filed a notice of appeal Thursday indicating that they will challenge U.S. District Judge Tanya Chutkin's decision rejecting Trump's bid to dismiss the case headed to trial in Washington, D.C. in March. The one-page filing, the first step in a process that could potentially reach the Supreme Court in the months ahead, was accompanied by a request from the Trump team to freeze deadlines in the case while the appeals court considers the matter. The filing of President Trump's notice of appeal has deprived this court of jurisdiction over this case in its entirety, pending resolution of the appeal, Trump's lawyers wrote. Therefore, a stay of all further proceedings is mandatory and automatic. In a separate statement, Trump campaign spokesman Stephen Chung said one of Trump's most sacred obligations and responsibilities as president was to ensure that the election process was conducted in a way that complied with the law, including investigating and challenging election fraud and regularities. He added that Trump has absolute immunity from prosecution and litigation for carrying out his sworn and solemn duties as president. Meanwhile, in New York, Trump returned to his civil fraud trial Thursday to spotlight his defense, renewing his complaints that the case is baseless and heaping praise on testimony that backed him up. With testimony winding down after more than two months, Trump showed up to watch New York University accounting professor Eli Bartov. The academic disputed the crux of New York State Attorney General Letitia James's lawsuit that Trump's financial statements were filled with fraudulently inflated values for such signature assets as his Trump Tower penthouse and his Mar-a-Lago club in Florida. My main finding is that there is no evidence whatsoever of any accounting fraud, said Bartov, whom Trump's lawyers hired to give expert perspective. Trump's financial statements, he said, were not materially misstated. 
He suggested that anything problematic, like a huge year-to-year leap in the estimated value of Trump Tower triplex, was simply an error. Our next article is entitled, UNLV Gunman Had List of Targets 150 Rounds. Clues suggest former professor was university faculty. This comes from the Associated Press, and the dateline is Las Vegas. The 67-year-old gunman who killed three faculty members and wounded a fourth in a roughly 10-minute rampage at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, had a list of targets at the school and 150 additional rounds of ammunition, police said Thursday. Clark County Sheriff Kevin McMahill identified the suspect as Anthony Polito, a longtime business professor who lived in nearby Henderson, Nevada. Police killed the assailant in a shootout the prior day. The sheriff said at a news conference that investigators were still looking into a motive, but noted that Polito applied for several jobs at various colleges and universities in Nevada and was denied the job each time. McMahill said targets on Polito's list also included faculty members at East Carolina University in North Carolina, where Polito was a professor at the university's business school from the years 2001 through 2017. Before the shooting, Polito also mailed 22 letters to university faculty members across the U.S., and at least one of the envelopes contained an unknown white powder substance, McMahill said. House censures member for tripping fire alarm. Vote is the most recent example of chaos and infighting in Congress. This comes from the Associated Press and the dateline is Washington. House members voted again Thursday to punish one of their own, targeting Democratic Representative Jamal Bowman for triggering a fire alarm in a U.S. Capitol office building when the chamber was in session. The Republican censure resolution passed with a few Democratic votes, but most of his party stood by Bowman in opposition of an effort they said lacked credibility and integrity. The prominent progressive is the third Democratic House member to be admonished this year through the censure process, which is a punishment one step below expulsion from the House. The 214 to 191 vote to censure Bowman caps almost a year of chaos and retribution in the House of Representatives. Since January, the chamber has seen the removal of a member from a committee assignment, the first ouster of a speaker in history, and just last week, the expulsion of a lawmaker for only the third time since the Civil War. Bowman pleaded guilty in October to a misdemeanor count for the incident, which took place in the Cannon House office building. He agreed to pay a $1,000 fine and serve three months of probation. In some shorter articles under the Digest heading, last pair sentenced in governor kidnap plot. A judge handed down the last sentences Thursday in a plot to kidnap Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer, the climax to an investigation that produced mixed results in court. Whitmer, a Democrat, was targeted as part of a broad effort by anti-government rebels who were hoping to trigger a a civil war around the time of the 2020 election, investigators said. Her COVID-19 policies, which shut down schools and restricted the economy, disgusted her critics. Sean Fix of suburban Detroit was sentenced to three years in state prison after pleading guilty to providing material support for terrorism. 
Brian Higgins of Wisconsin Dells, Wisconsin, was sentenced to, to, to probation for three years for scouting Whitmer's vacation home with a camera rigged to his pickup truck. Next, man gets 11 years in prison for riot. Dateline, Washington. A former California police chief convicted of a conspiracy charge in the U.S. Capitol riot was sentenced Thursday to more than 11 years in prison after giving a speech that raised Republican presidential candidate Vivek Ramaswamy's suggestion the January 6, 2021 attack could have been an inside job. Alan Hostetter, who prosecutors say carried a hatchet in his backpack on January 6th, spun conspiracy theories as he spoke to a judge at his sentencing hearing, falsely claiming the 2020 election was stolen from former President Donald Trump and referring to the riot as a false flag operation. Only eight other January 6th defendants received a longer term so far. His, his is the third longest January 6th sentence among those who were not charged with seditious conspiracy. Members of the Federation Council, Russia's upper house of parliament, voted unanimously Thursday to set the country's 2024 presidential election for March 17th, moving Vladimir Putin closer to a fifth term. The leaders of China and the European Union held talks Thursday that focused on their disputes over trade, subsidies, and the war in Ukraine. Chinese President Xi Jinping met in Beijing with the two European presidents, Ursula von der Leyen from the EU Commission and Charles Michael from the EU Council. Bacteria that sparked formula recalls and shortages last year infected two babies this year, killing a Kentucky child and causing brain damage in a Missouri infant, federal health officials confirmed Thursday. Still, they said, there is no broader public health concern. From New York, former U.S. Representative Tom Suzy will be the Democratic nominee in next year's special election to replace ousted Republican Representative George Santos, New York Democrats announced Thursday, and Russia's intelligence services targeted British politicians, civil servants, and journalists with cyber espionage to interfere in UK politics, Britain's government said Thursday. Brings us to an article entitled, Palestinians Cut Off With Little Aid. Airstrikes Continue to Pound Southern Gaza During Israeli Offensive. This is written by Wafa Sharafa, Karim Chahayab, and Lee Keith of the Associated Press, and the dateline is Dir Albala, Gaza Strip. Desperation grew Thursday among Palestinians largely cut off from supplies of food and water as Israeli forces engaged in fierce urban battles with Hamas militants. Strikes in the southern Gaza town of Rafa sowed fear in one of the last places where civilians could seek refuge. United Nations officials say there are no safe places in Gaza almost a week after Israel widened its offensive into the southern half of the territory. Heavy fighting in and around the city of Khan Yunus displaced tens of thousands of people and cut most of Gaza off from aid deliveries. More than 80% of the territory's population already fled their homes. UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres used a rarely exercised power to warn the Security Council of an impending humanitarian catastrophe in Gaza and urged members to demand a ceasefire. 
Arab and Islamic nations called for a vote Friday on a draft council resolution demanding a humanitarian ceasefire. Guterres explicitly cited Article 99 of the UN Charter that allows the Secretary General to bring any manner which he believes threatens international peace and security to the Council's attention. The power has only been used a handful of times in the history of the world body. The United States, Israel's closest ally, appears likely to block any UN effort to halt the fighting. Still, Secretary of State Antony Blinken said Thursday casualties are still too high in a call with Israeli Minister of Strategic Affairs Ron Dermer, a senior State Department official, said. Israel says it must crush Hamas's military capabilities and remove it from power following the October 7th attack that ignited the war. In photos and video published Thursday, at least 100 Palestinian men are seen sitting in rows on a street in northern Gaza, stripped down to their underwear with their heads bowed as they are being guarded by Israeli troops. The Al-Arabi Al-Jadid news outlet said that correspondent Daya Al-Kahlout was among those detained and had been taken to an unknown location. Israeli military spokesman Daniel Hagari said Israeli troops detained and interrogated hundreds of people in Gaza suspected of militant links. You are listening to the Waterloo-Cedar Falls Courier on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. All material heard on IRIS is intended solely for the use of the blind and print disabled. I'm your reader, Scott Splavik. If you have any comments on this or any other IRIS program, please give us a call at area code 515-243-6833. Now I'll read an article entitled Race to the White House. Clinching nomination is all about delegates. How does that work? It's written by Robert Yoon of the Associated Press. By now, Americans should be well aware that the process of electing a president isn't like electing a senator or governor. That's especially true during the presidential primaries when the major political parties use a complex and decentralized system to pick their nominees to compete in November. That complicated process was highlighted in the nomination plans released by the Republican National Committee, which lays out numerous ways in which states will assign the delegates that a candidate must accumulate to win the party's nod to become its presidential candidate in 2024. Although voters across the country cast ballots for their preferred presidential candidate during the presidential primary season, it's actually the delegates to the national party conventions who select the nominees for each major major party. Much like in the general election, where a candidate needs a majority of votes in the electoral college to win the White House, in the primaries, candidates need a majority of delegate votes at the convention to win the party's presidential nomination. Winning the popular vote in a primary or caucus may give a candidate bragging rights and media attention, but it's the candidate who accumulates a majority of delegates who ultimately advances to the general election. Here are the basics about the delegate selection process that you should know as the primary campaign gets underway in just a few weeks. What is a delegate? In the context of presidential elections, Delegates are individuals who represent their state or community at their party's presidential nominating convention. These delegates choose a presidential candidate to represent the national party in the November election. 
They also approve the party's platform and adopt rules governing the party. Delegates tend to be party insiders or activists or early supporters of a particular presidential candidate. How many delegates are there? Both the Democratic and Republican National Conventions will feature thousands of delegates representing all 50 states plus the District of Columbia and several U.S. territories. Democrats will have about 3,900 voting delegates for the first ballot at the convention and more than 4,600 for subsequent rounds of voting, if necessary. Republicans will have 2,429 delegates voting at the convention. What kinds of delegates are there? Delegates can be divided into two broad categories, pledged and unpledged, as Democrats call them, or bound and unbound, as Republicans call them. Pledged and bound delegates excuse me, must vote for a particular presidential candidate at the convention based on the results of the primary or caucus in their state. These are the delegates who are up for grabs on any given primary or caucus night. The requirement to vote for a specific candidate lasts at least through the first round of voting at the convention, but depending on state and party rules, some pledged and bound delegates become free to vote for any candidate on subsequent rounds of voting. Pledged and bound delegates can be further divided into at-large delegates and district delegates. At-large delegates represent the entire state while district delegates represent specific districts within the state, usually congressional districts, but sometimes state legislative districts. Democrats have an additional type of pledged delegate that Republicans do not, party leaders and elected officials, or PLEOs. These tend to be notable local elected and party officials, though not governors or members of the U.S. House or Senate. Unpledged and unbound delegates may support any presidential candidate regardless of the primary or caucus results in their state or local district. On the Democratic side, unpledged delegates may not vote on the first ballot in a closely contested race, but are free to vote for any candidate in subsequent rounds of voting. Democrats adopted this rule after the 2016 election in order to limit the power of unpledged delegates, formerly known as superdelegates. All Democratic governors, U.S. senators and representatives, current and former Democratic National Committee chairs, and former presidents serve as unpledged delegates. For Republicans, delegates from Guam, Montana, New Mexico, and South Dakota will be unbound and free to vote for the candidate of their choice according to the plans released recently. How does a candidate win delegates? Candidates win delegates in a state based on their performance in an election or some type of presidential preference event, usually a primary or a caucus. But the two major parties have vastly different approaches in determining exactly how delegates are allocated to candidates. How do Republicans allocate delegates? For Republicans, state parties are mostly free to determine how to award delegates to presidential candidates, although the RNC does establish some guidelines and restrictions. The most common delegate allocation methods are proportional. Candidates are awarded delegates in proportion to the share of the vote they receive in the primary or caucus. There are many variations of proportional allocation methods. Some states allocate all their delegates in proportion to the statewide vote. 
Others allocate just their statewide delegates according to the statewide vote and their district delegates according to the vote in each district. Many states require that candidates meet a certain vote threshold at either the statewide or district level to qualify for any delegates. Under RNC rules, states holding contests before March 15th must use a proportional allocation method and can use a threshold of no more than 20% of the vote for a candidate to qualify for delegates. Winner take all. The candidate who receives the most votes in a primary or caucus wins every delegate at stake in that contest. Only contests held March 15th or later may allocate delegates on a winner-take-all basis. Hybrid. Some states allocate delegates using a mix of proportional and winner-take-all methods. A common combination is majority-take-all, in which statewide delegates are awarded proportionally, though one candidate can win them all if they get more than 50% of the vote. Direct election of delegates. Under this method, delegates are elected directly by voters. How do Democrats allocate delegates? Unlike Republicans, Democrats have a standardized rule that all state parties must observe. Candidates win at-large and PLEO delegates in proportion to their share of the statewide vote. They also win district delegates in proportion to their share of the vote in each congressional district. Candidates must receive at least 15% of the statewide vote to qualify for any statewide delegates and at least 15% of votes in a congressional district to qualify for delegates in that district. When will the first delegates be allocated? The Republican delegate selection process will begin with the Iowa caucuses on January 15th and the New Hampshire primary on January 23rd. Nevada and South Carolina will hold delegate contests in February. According to party rules, the Democratic delegate selection process will begin with the South Carolina primary on February 3rd, with Nevada and Michigan holding contests later that month. New Hampshire is holding a Democratic primary on January 23rd in violation of DNC rules, and the DNC has not yet said whether and how that will impact the state's delegate allotment. The bulk of Democratic and Republic contests will be held between March and June. Now here's a personal finance article entitled Holiday Tipping Guide, Who to Thank and How Much to Give This Season. It's written by Emma Patch of Kiplinger Consumer Finance. Tipping is not a uniquely American practice, but we tip more often and in larger amounts than in just about any other country. The practice is so established that many workers' wages are based on the anticipation of tips. Holiday tipping is also a traditional way to show gratitude to people who have provided you with a service throughout the year. Here are 12 categories of people in your life who might deserve a holiday tip. 1. Your mail carrier. Suggested tip, a small gift valued at no more than $20. Definitely not cash. Postal service carriers are permitted to accept a gift worth $20 or less from a customer per occasion, such as Christmas, per USPS. Gift cards are okay so long as they have no cash value. 2. FedEx, UPS, and Amazon drivers. Suggested tip, a basket of prepackaged goods. FedEx drivers are prohibited by work rules from accepting payments from customers. UPS drivers are not barred from taking tips but are encouraged to say no. 
Amazon drivers are allowed to accept tips, but it isn't expected. Three, your grocery delivery or curbside pickup person. Suggested tip, 10 to $30. If you use grocery delivery or curbside pickup services, consider a generous tip in recognition of the provider's hard work this holiday season. Four, your newspaper delivery person. Suggested tip, 10 to $30. If you tip regularly throughout the year, give your newsie a ju- just a few dollars, or instead of cash, you can give a small gift, according to the Emily Post Institute. Five, your trash and recycling collectors. Suggested tip, 10 to $30 each. Catch some FaceTime with your trash collectors and hand them their tips directly in an envelope with a nice note or holiday card. Be sure to check on the rules for your municipality, as some jurisdictions forbid workers from accepting cash, according to Emily Post Institute. 6. Your child's teacher. Suggested tip, a nice gift. Cash is a no-no for teachers, but a small gift accompanied by a note or drawing from your child is a nice thank you for an educator's hard work or pool your resources with other parents to buy the teacher a gift card. Just be sure to first check the policies of your child's school. 7. Your regular cleaner. Suggested tip, the cost of one visit. This amount is considered fitting if he or she visits weekly or bi-weekly, says Roseanne Thomas, author of Excuse Me, The Survival Guide to Modern Business Etiquette, Increase the amount for someone who works more often or has been providing you service for several years. 8. Your hairstylist or barber. Suggested tip, the cost of one visit. If you have a stylist who doubles as a confidant or therapist, you might want to consider also including a small personalized gift. If you don't regularly visit a salon or barbershop throughout the year, you may prefer to give about $20 as a tip during your December visit to whoever you're dropping in on for a trim around the holidays. Oh, and if someone does your nails, same rules apply. The cost of one visit as a tip. 9. The pet crew. Suggested tip, up to the cost of a session. Just as you should take care of the person who takes care of your hair, you should think of the person who tends to your pet's mane. Anywhere from half to the full cost of a session is appropriate, or a personal gift may suffice. For a dog walker, you might consider tipping one day's pay unless he or she walks your dog five days a week or more, says Jody R.R. Smith, president of the etiquette consulting firm Manor Smith. In that case, give up to a week's pay or a small gift. 10. A personal caregiver. Suggested tip, one week to one month of pay. A senior care aide employed personally by an individual or family might deserve at least a week's pay as a holiday bonus. For the caregiver you'll work with through an agency, you'll need to check the company's policy. The same goes for nursing home workers. If you're not permitted to tip, a special treat such as homemade cookies or fudge is a good way to thank someone who has been exceptionally kind and attentive. However, when bringing goodies to nursing home staff who offer around-the-clock care for your loved one, make sure to cover every shift, says etiquette expert Diane Gotsman. Number 11, your personal trainer. Suggested tip up to the cost of one session. After sweating it out with your trainer all year long, you might find you've become quite close. Consider a generous tip, especially if you have an ongoing relationship with the professional and believe you have received above-average service. And 12. Your golf 
pickleball, or tennis pro, suggested tip, a nice gift. These folks generally do not expect to tip for their services. In fact, they might even be insulted by such a gesture, says Gotsman. But after improving your game by another year's worth of lessons, you might consider getting them a thoughtful gift or batch of baked goods to show your appreciation. The same goes for your kids' various instructors. Now it's time to move on to sports. And from last night's NFL game, Pat's Snap Skid. Zappy throws for three TDs as New England damages Pittsburgh's playoff hopes. Written by Will Graves of the Associated Plus, and the dateline is Pittsburgh. Bailey Zappi threw three first-half touchdown passes, and the New England Patriots snapped a five-game skid while damaging the playoff hopes of the Pittsburgh Steelers with a 21-18 victory on Thursday night. Zappi passed for 240 yards in his second start for the Patriots, who became the second two-win team in five days to hand the Steelers a potentially season-altering loss at home. Hunter Henry had two touchdown catches for New England. Ezekiel Elliott had 140 yards from scrimmage, 72 receiving, 68 rushing, and caught a TD for the NFL's lowest scoring offense, which reached the end zone three times for the first time since October. Juju Smith-Schuster added 90 yards receiving against the team he starred for earlier in his career. Mitch Trubisky completed 22 of 35 for 190 yards passing for a touchdown and running for another while filling in for injured Steelers starter Kenny Pickett. Trubisky also threw an ill-advised pass in the first half that was picked off to set up the first of Henry's two scores, and he inexplicably threw deep to a well-covered Deontay Johnson on fourth and two at midfield with just under two minutes left. Pittsburgh got the ball back with 15 seconds remaining but had no realistic chance to score. The Steelers managed 264 yards of offense, another step back for a group that briefly seemed on the verge of getting it together after offensive coordinator Mac Canada's firing before Thanksgiving. Pittsburgh piled up 421 yards the following week at Cincinnati, but the offense regressed in Sunday's loss to Arizona. The Patriots, five days removed from a shutout loss to the Chargers in which they failed to reach the red zone, let alone the end zone, looked far sharper against a team that stressed it wouldn't overlook another also ran. It happened again anyway. Zappi guided the Patriots to their first opening drive touchdown of the season when he hit Elliott in the flat and the running back raced from in from 11 yards out. Two plays after Jabril Peppers stepped in front of Trubisky's pass into triple coverage. Zappi found Hurst in the back of the end zone to give the Patriots their biggest lead of the season. The advantage swelled to 21-3 uh, two possessions later when Hurst made a diving grab at the goal line for a 24-yard score that had some in the back the black-clad crowd chanting for backup quarterback Mason Rudolph, who has been buried on the bench for the last two years. The switch to Rudolph never came, and while Trubisky got the Steelers within striking distance behind a 25-yard touchdown pass to Johnson late in the second quarter and a one-yard sneak with 11.44 to play that brought Pittsburgh within three, it wasn't enough. Some notes from the NFL. Jacksonville quarterback Trevor Lawrence returned to practice in a limited capacity Thursday, taking another step toward playing at Cleveland despite a high ankle sprain. 
Buffalo edge rusher Von Miller declined to take questions at his locker on Thursday, a week after turning himself in to police in a Dallas suburb after allegedly assaulting the mother of his children, who is pregnant. Miller simply shook his head no and said not today when approached by reporters. Longtime NFL kicker Robbie Gold is retiring following an 18-year career that established him as one of the game's best in the clutch. Gold announced his retirement on the Players' Tribune Thursday. Running back Javante Williams has provided an offensive identity to Denver, one that many expected wouldn't happen until 2024 because of the complex right knee injury he sustained a month into the 2022 season. Williams was selected as the Broncos' Ed Block Courage Award recipient on Thursday for the work he put in to make his comeback. And Zach Wilson was benched to try to spark the offense. Two games later, there's still barely a flicker. So Wilson is back as New York Jets starter again, and he'll be under center Sunday when the Jets take on Houston. In Major League Baseball, Yankees make vintage Steinbrenner move by getting Soto. This comes from the Associated Press, and the dateline is New York. Juan Soto's arrival is assigned to the New York Yankees want stars to help them rebound from their worst season in three decades, a move right out of late owner George Steinbrenner's playbook. We certainly want to try under the Steinbrenner leadership to make this the mecca of baseball, general manager Brian Cashman said Thursday, a day after acquiring the three-time all-star outfielder from San Diego in a seven-player trade. George Steinbrenner always felt that the best players in the world should play here for the New York Yankees. Hal Steinbrenner and Jenny and Jessica have continued those efforts, Cashman added, referring to the controlling owner's sisters. Juan Soto is the latest example of that, of their efforts to try to bring the greatest, most talented baseball players the world can provide to play and call home here in the Bronx. New York also got gold glove center fielder Trent Grisham in exchange for right-handed pitchers Michael King, Johnny Brito, Randy Vasquez and Drew Thorpe, along with catcher Kyle Higasioka. Soto, who turned 25 in October, hit 275 with 35 homers, 109 RBIs, and a 930 OPS in his only full season with the Padres, and joins a batting order that includes Aaron Judge. Cashman likened pairing Soto with Judge to a card game. In other MLB news, Kimbrell hopes to help O's reach playoffs again. Craig Kimbrell expressed a bit of urgency after joining the Baltimore Orioles. They want to win, and they want to win now. I don't know how many more years I got to do this, and I go out there and sling the ball. The 35-year-old closer said Thursday, I want to be a part of a winner. I want to be part of a great opportunity and be comfortable doing it. After winning 101 games and an AL East title, the Orioles are now a reasonable destination for many free agents hoping to for an immediate shot at the postseason and for a reliever like Kimbrell, the opportunities go beyond that. After closer Felix Bautista had Tommy John surgery, Baltimore had a significant need in the bullpen, one that the Orioles tried to fill by acquiring Kimbrell on a $13 million one-year deal. Bautista had 33 saves and a 1.48 ERA last season, but did not pitch after August the 25th. From Houston, Astros and free agent catcher Victor Caratini finalized a $12 million two-year contract. 
a switch hitter, the 30-year-old Caratini spent the past two seasons with the Milwaukee Brewers and batted 259 with seven homers, 25 RBIs, and a 711 OPS in 62 games this year as William Contreras's backup. He committed only one error and did not have a passed ball in 58 games behind the plate. From the Cincinnati Reds, according to an AP source, Jamer Candelario agreed to a $45 million three-year contract with Cincinnati, giving the Reds a surplus of infielders that could lead to another move. Candelario batted 251 with 22 homers and 70 RBIs in 140 games this past season. And the Washington Nationals' Nick Senzel agreed to a $2 million one-year contract with Washington, according to an AP source. Senzel was the number two pick in the 2016 amateur draft and spent his first five major league seasons with Cincinnati. In NBA news, former Iowa State Cyclone Tyrese Halliburton helps Pacers beat Bucks advance to title game. Tyrese Halliburton hit his third three-pointer with less than a minute left, pounded his chest, and looked down at his wrist to let everyone know one thing. It's our time. Halliburton had 27 points and 15 assists, and the Indiana Pacers beat the Milwaukee Bucks 128-119 to to advance to the championship game in the NBA's inaugural in-season tournament. We're playing the right way, and we're shocking the world right now, and we're going to continue to do that, Halliburton said. And as long as we play the right way, we know we're going to be in every basketball game. Miles Turner had 26 points for Indiana. Obi Toppin had 14 points on 6 of 8 shooting. Isaiah Jackson chipped in 11, and Bruce Brown scored 10. The Pacers are averaging a whopping 132.6 points during the tournament, Overall, they are averaging 128.3 this season, 131.7 over the last 14 games. Damian Lillard scored 24 points. Chris Middleton added 20, and Brooke Lopez netted 18 for the Bucks. Most important, however, was Indiana's reserves outscoring Milwaukee's backups 43-13. to Indiana's bench was a combined plus 62, while Milwaukee's reserves were minus 46. Yeah, our bench really was the difference in today's game, Patriots coach Rick Carlisle said. If you look at the plus minus, it's pretty obvious that those guys played a major role. In other NBA news, Lakers 133, Pelicans 89. LeBron James scored 30 points in less than three quarters in the Los Angeles Lakers steamrolled New Orleans in Las Vegas to reach the title game. By halftime, James had 21 points on 7 of 9 shooting. He went to the bench midway through the third quarter, which should give him plenty of energy for the championship on Saturday. Austin Reeves scored 17 points for the Lakers. Anthony Davis added 16 points and 15 rebounds, and Toreen Prince finished with 15 points. Trey Murphy III led the Pelicans with 14 points, and Zion Williamson added 13 points. Other news from around the NBA, Knicks draw short end of tourney stick. Julius Randle pointed around the room like a game show host teasing the day's next prize. Only there wasn't a prize, at least not for the New York Knicks, just a lopsided schedule courtesy of the NBA's new in-season tournament. The Knicks will now play 42 games on the road and 40 at home instead of 41 apiece. The two extra road games come against championship contenders. 
The Knicks already lost one to the Bucks by 24 points in Milwaukee on Tuesday and are set to travel to Boston to face the Celtics on Friday, a team they have already lost to twice this season. The Knicks will play the Bucks and Celtics five times each as opposed to the normal maximum serving of four games against conference foes. To make matters worse, the two teams added to the schedule are on the road and Boston in particular is known for its home court advantage. We got five games versus both, Randalls said after practice on Thursday. What do you want me to say? That's bull. What can we do about it? That's just the way it went. And the Chicago Bulls guard, Zach Levine, could be sidelined through the rest of December due to inflammation in his right foot. The team said Wednesday night that the two-time All-Star will need three to four more weeks of rehab. Levine, who is averaging 21 points in 18 games this season and has been the topic of recent trade speculation, has missed three straight games. The Bulls are 3-0 and in that span. That brings us to the end of today's reading of the Waterloo-Cedar Falls Courier. I'm your reader, Scott Splavik. Thanks for sharing your time with Iris, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind.